was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Here's a little thought exercise for you. At what point is your business large enough that if you sold it, you could fund your lifestyle needs for the rest of your life? Because when you reach that point, it's worth asking yourself, why continue? When the sale of your business could fund everything you could possibly need or want, you risk all of that every day you retain your company. And that's exactly the point at which Adam Torres, my next guest, decided to sell his company. He built it up, Team Dynamics, over a 15-year period. So this is not an overnight thing. This is a 15-year run. Built it up to what he figured it would be worth around three to five times annual revenue. It was a software company, which gets valued at a very high multiple. But he figured that by selling it, he really was free. And that's exactly what he decided to do. There are lots of little pearls of wisdom in Torres's story. I'll let him describe them to you. A couple of things that stood out for me is some of the negotiation granular details around things like a cap and basket, which he'll describe, uh, reps and warranties, which we get into, the whole issue of a non-compete, which is an important thing to consider that you may not want to sign, at least for the extension of a five-year term, which Adam did. Uh, Lots of really interesting tidbits for an aspiring value builder here. To tell you the rest of the story is Adam Torres. Adam Torres, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell me about Team Dynamics. What did you guys do? So we kind of started off in the project and portfolio management space, also in kind of the collaboration space, software business. Um, And then over time, the business really morphed into IT service management, or ITSM and ESM, enterprise service management. And within that domain, we really focused in the higher education space and sometimes some of like state and local government. So higher education, I think of as universities and colleges, and they would have computers that they need to have networked and managed and make sure all the you know, antivirus software is up to date. Is that that kind of stuff you did? Uh, yeah, sort of. I mean, that's, that's part of it on the enterprise side, but I think an easier way to maybe think of it is, hey, um, I'm at a specific college and university and I want to get on their network. What do I do? or I'm at a specific university, I'm having trouble getting on the network, or I need 
to request something from the institution, whether that be a, a new student ID or really kind of any kind of request management and fulfillment of that request that happens within the university space, that would be all kind of covered in the ESM. And it, was it a, a service business or did you have some sort of software that enabled this, these requests? Yeah, great question. It, it was, it was uh, a software business. So it was an enterprise software business uh, kind of hosted in the cloud. Uh, we also had a uh, professional services group that did the implementation of the software at the particular school and helped them mm-hmm. kind of get set up and configured on it. And did you use the SaaS business model? Assuming? We did have a SaaS business model. Um, we hosted everything in the cloud with, uh, with Microsoft Azure. And um, that's how all of our customers kind of connected to the platform and used it. That's helpful. Out of interest, what was the proportion of revenue between the SaaS recurring versus the one-time installation? Yeah, so that's a good one. Um, I mean, that, that changes over the years. Um, these kinds of businesses have a, have a lower valuation if the services portion gets to be an outsized portion. So uh, everything that I kind of worked on and kind of focused on was to never let that go over to like 30 to 40% of the total total revenue. Now, when you're small, when you're a small business and you don't have a lot of existing base, um, your services tend to be on new clients, right? So on new clients, you add a client and let's say, you know, 50% of the deal is services to get it implemented in year one. But as the base of customers grows, that kind of dilutes down that services piece and you should end up, you know, I mean, I would say ideally we'd end up in like the 80-20 split. Yeah. Yeah. So a bit of services revenue, but most of it coming from that recurring sort of licenses. Got it. I, you know, when I think about universities and colleges and higher education, I mean, I, I, it kind of freaks me out just thinking about trying to sell to them. Cause I'm like, how would you go about actually selling to an organization that's so bureaucratic and uh, just the thought of it would make, makes me like, at least with a company, when you're selling to a company, you can appeal to their desire for profits, right? In the school of higher, right. like higher learning. It's just, I just, how did you sell to these guys? Well, I mean, I think it, it's one of those things where I get that a lot and it's, believe it or not, it's not as bad as you think, right? These How'd guys, you figure uh, out who to sell to? Well, in our case, we were predominantly selling to the CIO. So it was a fairly clear path. We were selling to the IT organization within colleges and universities. Um, I, I have some other businesses who are selling different, other different buyers, but predominantly in this case, it's the CIO who's the buyer, or if it's a really big school, um, you have directors under the CIO who have budget authority. It's not as bad of a sales cycle as everyone hmm. thinks it is. They take a little bit longer. So we had about a six-month sales cycle, uh, plus or minus. But the great part of it is when you're selling SaaS business, they're a little slower to buy, but they're really slow to change. And so once you get them in, in the wheelhouse, it's, it's, a, it's a customer that's a lot, it's a lot less demanding on an ongoing basis, which means you can really build that base up over time. So, so tougher, to, tougher to win, but once you win them, very sticky. Did you look yes. at stuff like your LTV to CAC ratio, lifetime value to customer acquisition cost? Was that a, a formula you guys spent some time looking at? We looked at lifetime value. Um, we didn't spend a lot, of, a lot of effort on customer acquisition costs at all. 
we looked at lifetime value. We looked at first year software was pretty significant. We looked at year over year growth on the book. So uh, we effectively had two sales forces in the end. I think at the beginning, and we're really small, you know, not the case, but in the end, we kind of had a new account sales force and their job was just new accounts at, at pretty much any cost, like because we knew we made money on them once we got them. So if we spent a bunch of money to get those new accounts, it was okay. And then on the existing account side, their job was to really take that book of business. If it was, if the, if he started the year at, you know, 5 million in, in existing customers, um, we really had a target of trying to add 10% on the existing customers, on those same customers every year, including any kind of uh, attrition built into that model. How did you incentivize those farmers, those customer success people who had the account, but they had to grow it? Like what was their, their variable comp tied to? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I believe in a business, you know, you have the further you get away from the CEO, kind of the less variable comp, but I like to see variable comp as far down the stack as possible, all the way down to the software developers. So I would tell you that the, the farmers or the customer success reps would be the second in the, in the groups of incentive-based comp. So new, new salespeople would have the highest incentive-based comp, and then the farmers would kind of go down from there. And that would be a much higher base in the case of a farmer and a much lower uh, commission rate versus a new account person, which would be much higher commission rate and a much lower base. And in our case, we used a, a recoverable draw. So, I mean, it was all commission, uh, sort of. But, uh, you, you know, that's kind of how we did it. And, and you know, we also, the, the, the farmer had to be a little deeper with the product and a little bit more uh, versed in all of the problems that the customer might face. So it just lent itself to kind of having people that were requiring a little bit higher of a base pay package. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious though. So there was a, there was a variable component. It was a lesser amount than, than the hunters got, but when it comes to the customer success people, like, were you, were you incentivizing them based on sort of forward leading indicators like usage of the product, et cetera, or was it all on, on, on their upsell ability, the ability to hit that 10% number? Yeah. Uh, most of it was on upsell. Um, and then there was some on customer satisfaction or, we use NPS, Net Promoter Score. I love NPS. I like to use NPS in kind of everything in terms of kind of getting a gauge of where the customer is. Mm -hmm. um, so we incentivize them as a group on NPS um, and also really on their ability to, to kind of renew the contract, right? So that's the third piece. So it would be kind of upselling, renewing those contracts when they came due. We, I really love to sign a three-year deal. That was kind of the sweet spot for me. I felt like any longer than that, you were kind of not producing enough value in a growing software base. Any shorter than that, it was too much work to keep kind of putting those people back out on the line to renew those deals. So I kind of thought two to three years was kind of the sweet spot. So yeah, renewals was, was big. Upselling was big. And, you know, what, however you do customer satisfaction, we did it with NPS, which is slightly different than that. But I think the audience gets the point. Got it. Yeah. And for those who don't know, the NPS acronym stands for Net Promoter Score. Simply surveying your customers, asking them a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend us to a friend or colleague? Uh, and then you analyze those results, calling your nines and tens your promoters and your zeros to sixes are your detractors. What was your Net Promoter Score? I mean, what, what was the kind of range that you guys were, were falling into? Uh, we were always in the, ah, man, that's a good question. I think we were always in like the 40 to... 
70 range. That's amazing. I think 70 is considered world-class, but quite honestly, I I think it's hard to just use a number and kind of put it out. You kind of have to base it a little bit on the industry. When you have a more of a consumer-based product, I think the numbers tend to be slightly lower. And on a business product, they tend to be higher only because the population of respondents is, is, is a little bit different. And I think people are more bought in. Uh, you know, businesses tend to be a little bit more bought in than, than do consumers. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, you just have to look at like benchmarks for airlines and rental car companies right. to know right. what the, right. uh, what the business and consumer models look like. That's helpful for sure. So definitely using and leveraging net promoter score. Got it. Um, how, how did you finance this business? Uh, was it, did you have partners? Did you have uh, folks, investors? Did you raise money? What was the process? Sure. So the first, this was largely a self finance uh, business um, with the exception of uh, some family who came in to the tune of, I think it was like 15 or $20,000. So it was a total of like fifteen or twenty thousand dollars invested, and that money went directly to buy. At that time, we bought servers. I mean, that probably sounds foreign to anybody starting a software company now, but at that time, you bought a server and you put it into a data center. So, um, and servers were expensive. So, I think we spent you know ten or twelve thousand dollars on servers and some networking, and that's where all the money went. But the business made money really from the beginning. So. Um, it, it's a little different than a lot of these software plays, but but it produced a, a, a very good net income. In the end, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of years we were doing fifty percent net income, forty to fifty percent net income. So it made money along the way, a lot of money, and it also made money on the exit. Got it. That's helpful for sure. And so you mentioned there was a we. It sounds like there was a partner. Did like who who was your partner in this business? Yeah. So this is a this is a this is a good story. Um, I started this thing, kind of just me, and the next guy that came on, and the guy that came on after that, and then the fourth guy that came on, and then when it got time to hey quit jobs and really kind of go full time with this thing, uh, I think number two and number three got a little bit spooked by it and said hey. This was awesome, but I'm not really ready to take that leap. And number four was. And so he took that journey uh, very early. And I'm very appreciative of, of, of all that he was able to help do. And I, he still works in that business. Got it. Uh, that makes sense. When you guys had that conversation, was it that you were asking them, the three individuals, to actually invest cash in the business or to take a lower sort of comp and sort of invest some sweat equity, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more the latter. We, we didn't have any comp. So the first few years or, or year or two, um, really there was little to no compensation to any of the people that were working there. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of a sweat equity kind of situation uh, with no comp. doesn't sound like a very good deal anymore, but, I think at the time I was 26 years old and, you know, to me, uh, you know, I said, I'm Moses, I can walk on water. We can do this thing and we just have to kind of stay focused on it. And I, you know, really, I think as a younger person, you're slightly more brazen and confident in your own abilities. And really, I think that would characterize the, 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 the culture of the business in the early days was just like, we're just better than them and we can do this. And, uh, you know, it took getting getting our 
our, our, our chops licked a few times before we, we realized that, hey, this is a lot harder than we thought. What was the biggest uh, moment of humbling that you remember where you realized how hard it was? Can you think of a specific example? Yeah, I, you know, early on, we weren't just focused on higher education. Early on, I was kind of thought that this is a very widely applicable product and we can sell it to anybody. And it was just two of us or three of us, you know, there weren't a lot of people involved at that time. And we had gone out and approached a Fortune 500 business uh, to buy this thing. And, you know, it was like we, we would win a deal in terms of they thought we had the best offering, but then we couldn't close the deal because they just would say, you're just not big enough. Right, you're just not a big enough company in order to, to 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 do business with us. We don't think that you'll make it, or you know, very kind of downtrodden sort of feeling in in these, some of these deals. And it was like, geez, like how how do we how does anybody build a company? Like if we're too small to do business with, we win the deal. We they think we have the best offering or the best product, and we still can't complete the deal. And so it goes to the next best vendor because they're just bigger. And so there are a lot of places where we just kind of got squeezed and there are lots of ways to squeeze a software company, especially a small one. And a lot of them are small at the beginning, right? There are lots of ways to squeeze them. I think we didn't realize how kind of brutal that, 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 that world is and, and being out there, it's tough, right? It's not just about having the best offering. And I think a lot of companies start out thinking I have the best offering or they start out with developers who say, I can do build a better mousetrap. And sometimes those businesses don't make it because they just can't get over the hurdle of completing a sale. I think you're, you're, you've got people nodding right now, Adam. I think people listening to this are going to go, yeah, I, I've tried pitching big companies, enterprise companies, Fortune 500 companies, and they, they, they blow me off. Um, what did you do? How did you get over that hump? In that first example, I said to them, hey, look, I, I, I think you're wrong about this, and, and I think you're wrong about us, but why don't we do this? Why don't we put the code, the entire source code, this was a big gamble in an escrow, and if for any reason we don't survive as a business in this period of time, you guys can, can access and have the source code, and it becomes yours. So, Basically, we put the whole company on the line, right? We, but, but at that time, you're, you're taking risks. Like, that's the thing about people that start companies. And I think the rest of the world doesn't get that, right? They see, you know, successes and money sometimes and lifestyles that change dramatically. What they don't see is that these people are taking big risks every single day. And they're putting their life's work on the line, and they're not even really batting an eyelash, right? They're just doing it all the time. And this was an example of me saying, "Yeah, let's just go. Let's put this. Let's we'll give you the source code, right?" That that's a ridiculous uh, ask if you if you ask me. A company saying, "Hey, we don't think you're going to make it. We like what you're doing, so we're going to do business with you and kind of root for you to go out of business, maybe, so that we can access everything that you've done in the last several years." That's the deal, and. You know, if you told that to most people, you know, I think you might, somebody might raise one of the fingers on their hand. But in this case, there was no way forward. So that was kind of the way that we had to do it. In that particular instance, we, we've 
hit a number of challenges like that along the way and had to deal with them in different ways, um, putting what, up a bond that, for thousands what, of dollars. What did that organization say when you said that you were willing to put the source code in escrow? I think they were a little bit surprised. I think they were kind of like, I think they thought we would just go away. What'd they do? And they, they agreed to it. We, we moved forward. And, um, you know, that was the first deal that kind of funded a lot of things. And I kind of thought of every deal early on, you know, you're getting squeezed on the cost, you're getting squeezed on the terms, you're getting squeezed on the assignments, you're getting squeezed on, the, on so many things, right? The more I kind of, at the time I didn't realize it, but the more I, the more I go, the further I go, I realize the people that have power in a lot of cases use it to kind of squeeze and pinch the, the smaller person in the arrangement. And it's, I don't think it's a good way of doing business. I don't think it's healthy for a relationship, but that's kind of what happened. And, and that's what happened to us along that path. And, you know, it was one of those things where we just kind of had to punch our way through it. And, and so and I think that's, that's just a lesson that, that sometimes you have to kind of take some of these terms. And I think there's a time when you push back too. I think there's a time where you say, no, we're not willing to do that. I needed deals early on to fund the growth of the business. And so it was critical that we took those chances. We tamped down the chances that we took a little bit in terms of the severity of the outcome as the business grew and got a little bigger. We didn't have to put the source code on the line. We didn't have to pay a $20,000 bond in order to get a deal. We didn't have to do some of those things as we got bigger. We shouldn't have had to do them at the beginning. You had to pay a $20,000 bond? How did that work? Yeah, some of, these, some of these states or schools, they just say, hey, in order to even bid, they, they create a hurdle to kind of keep smaller people out. They say, in order to even bid on this thing, you got to basically write a check as a bond and we're going to hold that money until you know, this contract works its way through. Just, just a bid on it. And if you lose the bid, we'll send you back your money. But yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, the what we saw in a lot of buying processes were a lot of businesses and in some cases governments put a lot of hurdles up because they either didn't want you to participate in that business or um, for some reason they had been burned by something in the past. And so they create these hurdles that basically stifle small company innovation that basically prevent you from participating. and. You know, I just think that's one of those, it's, a, it's another thing. I mean, you're like swimming upstream as a small business every day. And to have buyers who have money and buying power to kind of put those hurdles up in front of you, I think it just makes it even harder. I'd love to circle back to this, this customer who insisted you put the source code in escrow, or at least they agreed to move forward based on that. How did you ultimately unwind that? Well, I mean, we, we served them through their contract period. And uh, I don't know if it was two years or three years or whatever. And at the end of that time, um, they were not in the higher education space. And we had started to kind of, kind of uh, become a little bit more vertical in terms of uh, the types of industries that we wanted to go after. I think at first we kind of just said anyone can, can buy and benefit from this. And as we got more as we had gone down the path a little bit more, we decided that, hey, we really want to focus and specialize in this one area. 
and they weren't in that area. And so at the end of their contract, uh, I don't know if they decided, probably they decided not to move forward. Uh, but at that point, you know, the, the, the source, the, uh, the escrow just kind of closed up. Got it. Got it. Let's move to uh, the exit uh, of Team Dynamics. What, what triggered your decision to want to sell? Yeah, so this is uh, really a, a personal decision. Um, my wife and I, I had put a lot of time and effort into this business. And this business really defines pretty much every moment of, of every day of my life. And I got married along the way. And my wife and I were trying to have a, a child. And that process wasn't going so well. Um, it went on a few years and when we finally when we finally got pregnant and uh, my daughter was born uh, i just decided that i needed to have a different type of life i just decided that uh, the business was big enough and could support my family and i for the rest of our lives and i just thought i don't want to keep coming home eight o'clock i don't want to keep missing things i don't want to spend this much time working and so was presented that opportunity and, and decided to pursue it. How much revenue, like how big a company is it at this stage? You know, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to just say approximately like five and a half million or six million, right in that, in that range. Got it. Got it. And, and so you made this decision on, on personal terms. So you, it sounds like you'd calculated in your mind, okay, if I sell this thing, I've, there's enough money here that I can, I can finance the rest of my life happily. Is that right. basically it? And how did you make that calculation? I think people would be curious to know, I'm not sure they need to know the number, but they might be interested in the methodology. Like, you know, financial advisors talk about this kind of 4% withdrawal rate. Was that what you were doing or were there other, like, how, how did you do the math? You know, I don't think it was so precise. I, I, I just think it, it was a big enough amount of money that it just, it was more money than anyone I knew had. And I just thought, ah, you know, I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a big amount of money. And, and don't, don't forget, like we were having multi-million dollar profits for five or six years before we sold it. So, it, you know, money was coming in. I remember when I, I bought like a, a significant house and, I remember when the kind of the, the business really started to hit and, you know, I'm, I'm getting like a few hundred thousand dollars every quarter as a bonus. And that was after taxes. And I just remember thinking like, what in the world am I going to do with all this money? And so it, it was just like to go from having so little amount of income, to so much income in a very short amount of time, uh, was very hard for me to wrap my mind around. And so, I just remember I paid, we paid off the, our house in like a year or a year and a half. And then I was like, now what do I do? But, but it, you know, it was just one of those things where it, it just was more money than, than pretty much anyone I knew. And I just thought, you know, work doesn't become a necessity anymore ever again. And so for me, that was a trigger point. And that's what I kind of was, was after and was able to kind of graduate my life into a, a very different place than, than where it was before. 
what was your next step? So you make this decision to sell. What next? So when you get to, when you're a software company, I, I, I know we, we want to be specific, but when I was, when the, the business hit 3 million, I don't know if there's like some way that people find out about it, but when you get to 3 million, just in a software business, if it's reoccurring revenue, I mean, these businesses are selling now at like 10 times reoccurring revenue, right? So $3 million business that might not be making a single dollar of profit might be getting a sale in like the high 20s, low 30s in terms of of, of return, which is a huge number if you think about it. But the process that, that kind of, you start getting inquiries, right? So the about every couple of weeks, another PE fund would reach out and say, hey, we invest in your space. We heard a lot about you. We'd really like to have a meeting. And it's usually these PE firms hire, you know, these young MBA guys out of school. They usually go to, you know, top business schools. And they're basically like sourcing people, right? So their job is to just try to get somebody on the line to say, hey, yeah, I'm an owner. I'll talk to you. And then they bring in one of their LPs. And, you know, that was LP happening for a while. for limited partner. Right. So that happens a lot. And I was just saying no to it. No, 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 no. And finally, I just said, you know what? Maybe I'll, I'll, you know, take one of these calls. And so started to do that. And there were a lot of them. Like I said, at that point, probably they were coming in. Something was coming in every week or two. So um, started taking the calls. Uh, actually, the first deal that we started to pursue, we did not complete. And um, it's a good thing. And then we kind of, backtracked and said, okay, we've learned a little bit about doing this now. So now we know a little bit more about what we want, what we're going to demand, and we'll make those demands right at the beginning of the process instead of waiting to be into it a little bit more. And so then the second, the second one we did, we kind of took it all the way through. But yeah, it started with, with these funds kind of just reaching out to you, and then you learning a little bit more about them, me learning a little bit more about them, and kind of figuring out who I thought was a good fit. Having never gone through it before, um, I, I'm glad that the first trip failed because I don't think the, the deal was what we ultimately would have wanted. Let's talk about the first one, the failure. Uh, what was the process like? What got you intrigued by their offer to begin with? And then what ultimately derailed it? So one of the things that, that I was really big on, I, and I thought for me, like I want to kind of work my way out of this. Um, for the rest of the guys, a lot of them, you know, they had built their lives around it and they really had every intention of continuing on with the business. And so my goal was to really find a home for the business where it wasn't going to be like a competitor who might just buy the company and get rid of most of the people. Um, I really wanted a, a buyer that was going to continue the business on in as similar capacity as possible. And so, that was kind of the, the thing that I was looking for. Um, I think the, the first deal that we, that we kind of came across, it postured itself much like that. Um, when we got into the details of it, though, we, we kind of realized that, hey, this isn't, this isn't a great deal. What made you realize it wasn't a great deal? Um, well, I think the, the amount of money was a big portion of it. I mean, I'm not, um, I'm not greedy, but like, you know, there were, offers coming in that were that were people were pushing LOIs, letter of intent to us with significantly more money. I think the other thing was 
that the deal that we ultimately settled on was not to sell the entire the entire thing. The first deal was 100%. And the individual or the, the fund that was, was coming in the first time was already talking about, you know, the, the people that they were going to start bringing in right away. And I was thinking, geez, we're not, we're not that far along. Don't you want to wait, you know, till we get a little bit more into this before you make those decisions? And was already talking about uh, the exit um, very quickly for uh, me and the other partner that was involved. And then I just thought, this is this is an ill-informed individual, right? I mean, these businesses, all these colleges and universities, about a, a couple hundred of them at the time, we we had a lot of relationships with those people. That wouldn't be something that you could just turn off in like a month or two. And I think this fund was kind of, that was their thinking or their approach. And, and that was a little bit of a red flag for me. But wasn't that what you wanted? Like, it you said you wanted to kind of work your way out. It, it was what I wanted, but I thought in order for the business to be successful, that that needed to be a more gradual process than what was being proposed. Got it. What you mentioned, you kind of learned some things from the first deal that you then applied to the second. What else did you learn from the first one? What can people learn from that experience? Right. So I think the deal structure becomes very, very important. Um, uh, you know, I think a lot of these deals have kind of hurdles that the business needs to hit in order for the payout to be paid 100%. And those kinds of hurdles are problematic if the structure or the leadership of the business is changing as a result of the deal. So, you know, if I came to you and said, hey, let's do this deal, I'll give you, I don't know, $20 million, but you know, you have to make, you have to make this much in terms of uh, top line growth and this much in terms of earnings for the next three years in order for you, for you to get that payout. But then you're also not going to be in charge of it anymore. That doesn't sound like a, that doesn't sound like a highly probable scenario where you're going to get paid out. And so a lot of these deals are, they sound good at first and then you kind of peel back the onion a little bit. The other thing is, I always think the reps and warranties in the deals are what kill the deal. So I think you got to really focus on the reps and warranties. When we went through it the second time, that was one of the things we put up front because we were kind of getting into the reps and warranties on the first one. And it just, it, it was, it was like the things that we had to, to warrant and indemnify were to me seemed ludicrous. Like and that. so the, the second time, you know, we were able to kind of really, kind of cap those reps and warranties. We use something called a, a cap and basket in the second deal, which is to say, like, none of those, um, none of those things kick in until you get, you fill your basket, until there's a certain amount. Uh, and, and in our case, it was like, I don't know, 100,000 or maybe it was a million, but it was like, hey, when the, when the claims get to be a certain amount, the first amount, you just have to, they're ticky-tack things. We're not going to deal with these claims. But then we're also going to cap the amount of claims, you know, at a certain level so that there's a kind of like a, you know, this is all that we would ever pay out in terms of claims. So that was, that's the structure that I really, really like. And I, I would encourage anyone to, to use that, that model going forward. That's awesome. Let me talk directly to my listeners because that may that term may be somewhat new to some folks. So reps and warranties obviously kind of promises that you're making when you hand over your business. And if there are things that are not true or that, that it tend up 
to to be uh, in dispute, there is an opportunity in some cases for the buyer to to come back at you. And if you have a basket, as Adam's describing, there's a certain volume of those financial volume of those that that can happen without uh, you know any sort of uh, claim made. But if there's also the cap, as you're describing, Adam, uh, there's a limit to the the sort of size of that claim. Is, uh, have I have I got that about right? Right on, right on. And I would say every deal, well, I, I think at least in our, for, for me, that was a very important sort of dimension of our second deal. Adam, it's, again, the, we learned so much from, from things that don't necessarily go the way we thought. The first deal, you mentioned that there were things that they were asking you to identify that you weren't comfortable with. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of things you were like, oh man, that's making me feel squeamish? Well, I think the first time you go through it, it's a little shocking no matter what's in there, right? So I would say that the one thing I tell people is just relax about some of these things, right? So some of these things, they ask you to indemnify in perpetuity, right? And those things are like taxes, right? So that's that's normal, right? If you didn't pay your taxes before someone bought the business, like you have to step in and do that. But I think I think, I think John, all of it scared me the first time I was going through. And, and I think it just took a little bit of wearing me down on some of it. But then like the contract, um, I mean, you have a three-year contract, for instance, right? And you're going to identify all your contracts. So something happens and a customer, we sell the company, I'm no longer there for some reason, neither is the other partner. And all of a sudden the customer says, Hey, I don't want to. I don't want to pay my third year of my contract. Um, they want us to indemnify the whole length of those contracts going out forever, for however long they were. If it was a five year and we were in the first eight months of it, we're indemnifying the rest of that deal. You know, I mean, come on. Like, there's a reasonable amount of time where you say, "Hey, I'm not involved in this business anymore," and the business did something that caused, you know, the contract to, to the, or the customer to be upset and want to get exit out of their contract and they don't pay out the whole amount, I'm not going to come in and write a check for the rest of that. I think I thought that was a little ludicrous. I think there's some time frame on those contracts that's reasonable. I think to say, hey, maybe 12 or 18 months is reasonable from the time of the close. But if I had a three or a five-year deal that was in the beginning of that deal, and you know, I'm not going to identify that whole amount. And I think that scared me, right? That was one of those things where in the first deal, we didn't have a cap. And I just thought, if this business comes in and really this new owner comes in and screws up all these deals and these customers are all angry and they want to get out of it, they're going to get out of it, right? They're states and, and municipalities. And if they don't want to pay, they just don't pay. So the reality of it is, is like you have to do a good job when you're, when you're predominantly dealing with states because, you know, they just, they, they don't pay if they don't, you know, if they don't want to pay and there's very little you can do about it. So I just wasn't going to, warrant all of that in perpetuity. That makes sense. The second time around when you did successfully complete, you, you mentioned that there were the reps and warranties, you kind of put them up, up front early in the conversation. Tell me about that. Well, the, the thing with the contracts, we kind of just said, hey, here's how we feel about the contracts. The thing with, um, we kind of, Kind of, we kind of retrenched a little bit on the taxes where everyone we talked to just said, look, the taxes is totally normal. You're going to have to warrant that forever. Um, 
there's also in the United States and Canada, there are nexus laws. And nexus kind of means, um, you know, it, uh, do, are you substantially in existence in that particular state where you're doing business? That affects the sales tax rules in those particular states. And so it's a very hard thing to navigate. Like we operated in lots of states. My guess would be 30 some states. Uh, we didn't have employees or property in those states, but some states are very, very aggressive when it comes to nexus laws. And so we didn't file individually. Like I didn't file individually in every single one of the states that we did business um, pro rata. And that's, you know, the laws are gray, right? Like it's not so clear whether there's nexus or not in those particular states. So they want you to warrant that kind of stuff too. And that's just something you have to get comfortable with. It's just a risk that you have to live with. And so far we haven't had any problems. We paid all the appropriate taxes to uh, mostly to Ohio. There were a few states that I think we did file in uh, independently and paid taxes in those states. And what Canada does is they just withhold, you know, a portion of, what they're going to pay you and they tell you if you want to get it go file a tax return in Canada. So I think in that in that case we just let them have it and and, and that's how we proceeded. I'd be curious to know how you were able to to sort of generate offers. So the first one it sounds like it kind of came to you out of the blue and you say you know what why don't I you know take a flyer and, and enter this conversation. As you started to proactively look for another deal did you did you go to market? Like, I think people listening would be like, Adam, like, I'm so jealous of all the offers you were getting. Um, I mean, did you just fire up your email and say, okay, I've got these six emails. I'll just send it out to all of them. Or did you proactively hire someone to represent you? Like, what was the way you went forward after the first deal collapsed? Yeah. So first, let me say that, like, I don't think that we did or I did everything right. I think it was a lot of mistakes. And I think that's characteristic of my entire life, right? It's a lot of mistakes. And a lot of times I just kind of hung around, right? So, you know, a lot of what I've done, like people all say that, like they, they kind of surface that kind of issue. You've had all the success, you do all these things, right? But the reality is, is really my life is a whole bunch of stories of just failures that I kind of weathered through. But in this particular case, we were kicking around hiring a firm. The problem with some of these firms is they want like five to seven percent to sell your business. And I didn't necessarily want to pay five to seven percent. Now, the risk that you're taking is that they can give you way more than five to seven percent in terms of a buyer's uh, ability to pay. So, I mean, that's that's the trade-off. But when the first offer came in, I kind of thought I had a baseline. So I kind of just upped that some percentage. It wasn't as scientific as, as what everyone probably thinks. And then I kind of went back to the other people who said they wanted to participate in this and just said, hey, you know, here's the starting place. And so they, and I just thought, let's just see what else is there. And, and you know, some of them bit. And that's kind of how we proceeded. So it wasn't as like, it wasn't scientific. I also knew at the time, like software companies in the SaaS space trade on ARR or MRR, monthly recurring revenue, annual recurring revenue. And now the numbers are big. Like I've seen a lot of numbers like eight to 10 times uh, ARR. At the time it was not as big, but uh, you know, so we kind of knew what the multiples were and, and that's kind of where think I was, was a fair, What'd you think was a fair multiple at that time? I thought three and a half to five times was where we needed to be in terms of range. Now, 
I look back on it and think, did I leave 15 or $20 million on the table? Maybe. Maybe I did. Um, but, look, you can always play that game, right? I mean, you can always – there's always a, a nicer car or a bigger house or a, a better deal. So I just I – don't, I don't think about it too much, but I do think we might have left some money on the table in that first deal. You mentioned mistakes. Again, I, I'm, I'm grateful for you sharing. What else do you think you might have done differently if, you know, history being, you know, vision being 2020 in the, in, in, in the rearview mirror, what might you do differently if you had the deal to do over again? Yeah, so I think I don't think I would have done the deal in the year that I did it. I think I would have hung on for two more years and done the deal at that time. I mean, certainly hindsight's 2020. But I think one of the things that a lot of entrepreneurs might go through and what I went through is it's a little lonely running a company. Um, you, uh, you know, at least for me, I had people that ran like parts of the business, but nobody who really, you know, felt the magnitude of the risk that was being taken every day. And nobody who was willing to give no matter what besides me in that business. And I think a lot of people who are entrepreneurs feel that. And it's an anxiety that's just kind of with you all the time or was with me. And I think if I could have, if I could have really gone out and worked to hire somebody that really shared that operating risk with me across the entire business, I think I would have probably had the fortitude to keep going for a couple of more years. And I think that would have been a good decision. So in hindsight, I think uh, I probably exited slightly too early. That makes sense. That makes sense. And it also makes sense, the sense of anxiety and just heaviness of, of running a company like that and being the only one at the, um, at the end. Did you, did you buy yourself a trophy? I mean, you'd already bought yourself a house, paid it off based on the profits of the company, but then you sell it. Like, did you, did you buy yourself a new car or something for your wife? Like, what, what did you do to mark the occasion? Yeah, you know, I saw this question and I've been thinking a little bit about it. I, I will tell you that I, I don't know that I did anything really that significant. I mean, I kicked her like everyone's like, oh, you should buy a Ferrari or... You know, uh, like, like everyone else had a lot of ideas in terms of how I should spend my money. But <clears throat> you have to remember, like, in my particular case, I really enjoy having a fairly simple life. And I think it'll be easy now for someone to say, now we, we, we live differently than we did before. But I think it was nothing that happened immediately after the deal, right? It was a few years out before we kind of slightly upsized our, our lives. But I still don't, you know, I have the same car as I did back then. I don't have this burning desire to own a lot of things. To me, the more things that I own, the more things I have to think about and maintain. And that weighs heavy on my mind. Um, I just really, what I really wanted to have most was my days back. And so I don't know that it, that was something that I bought, but it was something that now I work three days a week. And, um, you know, I just, I dabble in things, right? Like I'll go and sit at a coffee shop for two hours on a Wednesday and talk to some entrepreneur about what they're working on. And, you know, I don't want anything from them. 
I think one of the things that like I always found is as I got going in the business, like everyone wanted something, you know, like here's an accountant that wants to do business with me and wants to help me with my taxes and wants me to pay them or, and so the advice to me was always a little bit tainted. And so I kind of just thought I want time and I want the ability to kind of work with other entrepreneurs that really I can just kind of give them something without anything coming back in return. And, and they can trust that, hey, here's someone that's done this and has experienced these worries that I'm experiencing and who isn't just trying to get me to pay them some fee or hire their company or do something like that. And so, I don't know, I didn't buy anything. We didn't take any, we did, we do move to Florida for the winter time um, and, 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 you know, do that. But I don't know, there was nothing like, nothing extravagant. Like I didn't go out and buy a Ferrari or God or, you know, a, a, a condo in, in Monaco or anything like that. Got it. You've certainly, um, been busy. Uh, tell us about what you've been doing uh, since since selling. I mean, what do you do now, and how do you, how do you feel with the three days that you are working? Yeah. So one of the things that was a real struggle for me was, and a, a, certainly it was a mistake, was the um, non compete, non solicitation um, uh, agreement that I agreed to in the transaction. And what that did was that locked me out of two industries that I love very dearly. For a long time, uh, five years actually, and um, that was one of the things that when I, I probably didn't completely process as we were going through the, the the deal, and I wish I would never have ever do that again. I would never sign such a long non compete, non solicitation um, type agreement. Um, so when I when I wanted to start to get back into um, technology and software and higher education, it was very challenging. Um, I was, my hands were very tied. Uh, so what I started just doing was just saying, hey, I got to go into more traditional business. I, I, I just, this is kind of locked out for me for a while. So I just kind of started doing what I was talking about before. We're like a lot of these owners, you know, they just want to talk to somebody about something, right? And they don't want to, they don't want somebody leaning on them for another check or another thing. And I started doing that and I just thought maybe that's what I'll be. I'll just kind of counsel other business owners and if they want help, fine. If they don't, that's, that's okay. And, and so I kind of started stumbling into things and over time, uh, you know, a lot of trust got built with these owners and they started to say, Hey, you know, would you invest in this thing to help me grow it? Or would you help me find a new uh, chief marketing officer? Or would you introduce me to a potential and university or a buyer or something. And some cases I could help them. Some cases my hands were tied. Um, but, but I actually bought and invested in a chain of daycares that was, you know, where my kids went. There was nothing special about it. It was three daycare centers and now we have 10. And, um, you know, we've quadrupled the sales in a couple of years. Um, we have, you know, medical, uh, we have a medical practice that he wasn't doing so well and kind of got it turned around. We have so I just kind of help these business owners usually for nothing at first. And they usually come to their own conclusion that they want me to be more formally involved in this business or not. And if they do, uh, you know, we will make an investment or I'll make an investment in, in, um, in those businesses and kind of help them try to grow. So since then, we've had, you know, three or four other transactions in, in just a few years. And um, we did two ESOPs, which is kind of a, a nice a model for a services business. Uh, we did another uh, outright sale, 
And then we had a second tranche on the first Team Dynamics product. So we had four transactions since uh, since 2016. Fantastic. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Is there, is that the best way for people to, to reach out if they wanted to say hi, or uh, do you want to send them to a website or what's the best way to connect? Yeah, no, I think LinkedIn's uh, the best way uh, for me. I, I, I do appreciate when someone actually sends a note. I get a lot of things, you know, from people that just want to connect and I don't, I'm not, not actually sure why. So I was on the fence with that because, you know, I, I'm not actually trying to be solicited, uh, you know, financial advice or accounting advice or legal advice. And I get a lot of those, but um, yeah, I think LinkedIn's a good way to, to kind of get in touch with me. Awesome. And it's Adam Torres, T-O-R-R-E-S. If I got correct. it. Awesome. Well, Adam, look, it was great to have you on and uh, continued success. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.